The Cinematologist, episode 137. The Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. In this episode, Neil takes listeners inside the University of Exeter's Bill Douglas Cinema Museum with the help and guidance of lead curator Phil Wickham. Elsewhere, Neil and Dario discuss the importance of the artefact and the material in cinema history and the role of libraries and museums in film and wider culture. Special thanks to Scott Barley for the use of his track Fugue for the central part of today's episode. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, great to speak to you after, uh, again, a, f- a little bit of a break from the, the last couple of episodes. Yes, lovely to talk to you too. Yeah, we are taking our time, aren't we, with these, uh, which is nice, uh, coming circling back around every now and again. <laughs> Certainly feels more... Slow podcasting. Slow podcasting. It's the way forward. Um, yeah, it feels nice to be to be back talking to you about uh, about movies again after what yeah what feels like a while. Yeah, and we've got a uh, fantastic episode that you have uh, recorded uh, this time around. It's you know it's almost a sort of uh, self enclosed artifact in and of itself. So we're going to get into that pretty quickly, and we're going to do some reviews on our on next episode. So. Because this is such a you know a, a, a unique thing in and of itself that you've put that you've produced, maybe you could just intro and uh, you know give give the listeners a little bit of a sense of what's what's coming, and then we'll get straight into it. Great, yeah. So I was well, we were invited to go up to the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum, which is at the University of Exeter, and seeing as it's actually rare in terms of an episode that we're invited to do that I'm closer <laughs> um, which doesn't happen very often with me being in Cornwall um, I took a trip up and it's a place I've wanted to go for a while and I thought yeah I'll go and um, just talk to Phil the lead curator and and, and walk around and, and, and see what it's all about and part of the reason to do it was to was for that kind of self-contained artifact was to just to do a walk and talk really mm. it's not something we've done on the podcast and I wondered how it would go and yeah I think it's come out okay yeah it, it has indeed and it what's interesting you know some of the the conversations sort of relate to that idea of what museums do in terms of their experiences and how audio has, has helped that maybe we'll talk a little bit about that afterwards um but yeah let's get straight into it this is uh Neil at the uh, Bill Douglas Cinema Museum
I've just arrived at the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum and this is a visit I've wanted to make for a while, not just for the podcast but uh, in general and uh, the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum is based at the University of Exeter and I know the curator Phil Wickham who I'll be talking to in a bit and uh, his wife Helen Hansen and a few, a few colleagues at Exeter and it's, it's long, been a, long been a place I've wanted to to come and I've heard great things about it. Uh, so I'm really excited to explore the, uh, the archive and the, the, the displays and see, what's, see what it holds, see what treasures it holds. I think that if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you've probably heard me wax lyrical about my love of proximity. And uh, a few years ago, I bought my wife, uh, who's a fan of the writer Anais Nin, I bought her a first edition. Uh, of one of um, Nin's books and it was signed by Nin um, and uh, I thought this was a really exciting present like you know my, my wife loves Anais Nin uh, she much will love this first edition and the fact that it's got Anais Nin's signature and uh, she, she liked it but I was like mm, you didn't seem to be as kind of you know overwhelmed as as I thought you were and she you know for her and I think probably the same for Darren I think we've talked about this before you know there's less, there's less affinity with those kinds of objects. Um, not to say there isn't any, um, but I think certainly I have a real love of being close to things and feeling the proximity that they have to the time uh, or the creator sort of that they come from. Uh, I've always loved, you know, visiting graves <laughs> um, of, you know, not just kind of you know people that I admire or. or quote unquote famous people but just you know just people and just standing near sort of being approximate to the the source I guess is the way of you know and first editions and signatures in that sense always make me feel like that's those those editions are closer to the time and the source of the, the person that made them so going to a library going to a museum being around the books and artifacts and just yeah. I just I find it really exciting. Um, I get a thrill from it, and it, I feel that it kind of connects me to the 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 words or the images or the sounds that uh, you know are kind of emanated from the people that are associated with those objects in a in a real way. Um, so I've been really excited to to come here and uh, and get a sense of this space and its artifacts and its history and the stories that it's telling. So hopefully you'll enjoy my conversation and walk and talk with Phil Wickham, the lead curator at the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. All right, well, thank you for joining me today, Phil. Great to be here, Neil. Thank you very much. Uh, we're sitting in the office of the Bill Douglas Museum, which I guess is where you spend most of your time uh, amongst the racks. Um, what is the, the Bill Douglas Museum and who was Bill Douglas? Well, the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum uh, is a, it's a public museum. It's um, accredited by the Arts Council. It's got galleries that are free and open every, every day to everybody. We've got research facilities. Um, and we're also a teaching facility, so we use the collection in over a hundred classes a year here at the University of Exeter and make it available to scholars, researchers, and anyone who wants to be interested all over the world. Um, the museum's been open for about 25 years. 
and it's called After Bill Douglas, one of Britain's greatest ever filmmakers, uh, the director and writer of the Bill Douglas trilogy and Comrades. But as well as being a filmmaker, Bill was also a collector. So together with his friend Peter Jewell, for over uh, 30 odd years, I suppose, um, from the end of the 50s until Bill's death in the early 90s, uh, together they collected material to do with cinema and film culture. Um, as they went on they became interested in different things um, and they went further back in time particularly and they started uh, collecting on the optical media that preceded cinema as well. So the collection was then after Bill's death donated to the university to found the museum. Peter's still alive and well and still bringing me stuff and we've also had donations from many many other people as well. So we're now 86,000 items in rising. Um, and it tells a story, and the story is the, the long history of the moving image, particularly the story of audiences and moving image, how people have consumed um, moving images, how they've responded to what they've seen, how it's created new ways of seeing the world. So it's a very broad collection with particular areas of strength in it, with this kind of coherent, distinctive narrative to it. And I would say... I guess I would, but I think I can justify it. We are the leading moving image museum in the UK. You know, we've got, nobody's got the sort of accessibility, the range and breadth of our collections. Um, and, you know, it's something that is available to everybody. You, know? yeah. you mentioned uh, sort of, you know, sort of certain strengths there. You know, what, what are the particular sort of, you know, sort of key aspects of the collection. You mentioned audiences, but what form does that take? Yeah, well, the story, the story is all there, but the particular, particularly strong areas would be uh, the pre-cinema optical media and a whole variety of different media and how they relate to each other, how they are a part of the development of cinema, but also how they're really engaging and important in their own right. In terms of audiences, yeah, things like cinema programmes, um, even things like scrapbooks that people have created themselves about their love of films, their cinema going. Um, things like press books, which are really within the film business, but are about imagining who the audience might, might be. Um, merchandise, uh, things like sheet music. We've got a massive collection of sheet music. We've got a huge book collection, which includes things like popular biographies, uh, novelizations, uh, as well as academic books. Um, We've also got real strength in star studies, so particularly um, with Chaplin, well over a thousand things on Chaplin, wow. probably about seven, eight hundred on Marilyn Monroe. Um, so these iconic stars and kind of what they mean, uh, but also, of course, a thousands of a whole galaxy of other stars as well. But those particularly strong with those two, James Dean as well. Um, so it's really about how people relate to what they see on screen, um, and. You know how that has shaped the world we live in. I guess. Yeah, fantastic. Um, you said it's been going sort of twenty-five years. Are there any sort of key stages? You know, how has the museum evolved in that time? I guess it wasn't always as it is today. Yeah, I mean, it opened with Bill and Peter's collection in uh, open to the public in nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, it was then called the Bill Douglas Centre for the um, History of Cinema and Popular Culture, and we changed it in twenty thirteen to the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. Um, I've been here about 14 years now. Um, the, all these things go through stages. So first of all, of course, it's acquiring, cataloguing, making the collection available. Uh, we're still in the same gallery spaces, but we've 
uh, in recent years we've had much more people coming to us and knowing about us so we are tucked away here on campus uh, we do have plans to to have new premises in the future bigger bigger premises obviously that costs a lot of money and at the moment things are a bit difficult but we had plans before the pandemic and we hope to take those further on in the future um, but in any case we have um, greatly expanded the numbers of people that come to see us we're now actively working in the community because as well as obviously we're at a university we serve the university but we also serve the people we're a bridge between those things so in a couple of weeks time for example myself and a colleague will be going into an old people's home do some work with memory boxes things like that we're trying to um, kind of work particularly with other groups um, we've got things for black history lgbt um, research projects all these kinds of things as well so you know we're taking a kind of active proactive look at you know who our audiences are and trying to you know appeal to uh, a very wide spectrum of people uh, we've also had donations from all sorts of other people so obviously it starts off with a personal collection we've then had some other significant donors since um, people like Roy Fowler for example gave you know probably a couple of thousand things but also it's people who found something in their attic you know inherited something from their granny you know uh, some collect we've got some things from collectors I, I picked up a donation yesterday from a collector out in Sidmouth that's very interesting stuff he'd been a cinema manager to do with that um, but also it might be an individual things that people find and once they know about us they want other people to see it they want other people to share in that history mm. that they might have um, so we've had an ever-increasing kind of roster of donors um, we were getting very very full but fortunately I've got a little extension of sports storage space that opened uh, last autumn so that's a relief <laughs> <laughs> Great. so uh, get more things in there um, so yeah we, we've we, we kind of expanded if there's anything you know that we don't already have that we think is going to be either valuable for teaching or research or is something that can really appeal to visitors uh, and form add to the history that we tell through our museum and our objects then you know we're, we're always interested yeah so yeah the museum is definitely on a kind of you know a long upward trajectory um, which is fab you mentioned sort of you know accessing um you know people from around the world can access the collection um you know how much is that a kind of an ongoing process of digitization or is it you know different means and i guess how has that you know sort of become more focused in the last couple of years i guess while you've not necessarily been as open yeah, there's a, there's a bit of that. I mean, our catalogue was all online and all available uh, to everybody. So, um, you know, we don't have too much of a backlog and, you know, as long as we're getting things in. So, um, you know, you can find out what we hold really easily through our uh, website. We do have probably about 6,000 images online of material. I mean, digitisation is not a magic wand. So that's actually quite a very labour-intensive and difficult process. But yeah. we, we have particularly some of our more obviously visual things we, we do have digital images online that people can view uh, over the pandemic obviously there was a year in which there was very little face-to-face -face teaching and we were scanning material for teaching for that um, and obviously there were periods when we couldn't open as a museum so obviously we're using social media channels to at least kind of talk about some of our artifacts we have blogs um, particularly from visiting scholars and stipend holders who come to see us there so prior to the pandemic we have people coming from all, all over the world on that on that scheme yeah um, but in any case, you know, some of our material is unique and people come from all over the world to see that. So if you look online, you'll see 
a blog from some of the people who visited, which include um, an Indian filmmaker looking at some of our kind of imperial stuff on India from the 19th century, included um, a Canadian scholar looking at some of our Charlie Chaplin material, um, a guy from the Czech Republic looking at David O. Selznick, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, so we particularly encourage people to look at new things in the collection. You know, we hope to be reopening the stipend scheme again um, later this year. Um, but yeah, there is, there is still, we still have been able to try and make things as accessible as possible. Um, we've been back in being able to offer research stuff quite quickly, actually, in just a, just a few months in 2020, we couldn't do that. Um, and we've been open again as a museum, you know, since, since last May. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously there have been a lot of people who haven't been able to get over and we hope to welcome them back this year but you know the website does offer something uh, for them in the meantime and we, we respond to inquiries we're able to do scans for people and things like that yeah since you, I love that idea of the memory box taking out yeah like yeah. The, the, those things um, and then just hearing you sort of say we've got a thousand things on Chaplin you know that it I find it really interesting in this age of like everything's available on the internet but how would how would you navigate a collection you know whereas hearing that there's that that body of work it like it feels much more achievable to go in amongst it in a space like this um you know i guess you do feel that way because obviously this is your job and you've you know been doing a lot of time but you know um how have you felt you know has there sort of been a an appreciation i guess for that kind of work grown over the sort of the Sort of the the time you've been doing it with the way that the idea of research and finding stuff has sort of radically changed in sort of the age of the internet. Yeah, I think that there's. I don't think anything replaces that field of physically looking at the material, um, and that's why scholars and researchers want to come. They want to come and see and feel an original piece of work, uh, and of course, the digital is great and it's a complement to that, and it can make things more accessible. But it's not not a replacement for it. Um, Obviously, in terms of digitization, making images of things is is one thing. You can't just digitize whole books. You know, there's copyright things and you know things that make that less than easy. So, um, in many cases, there isn't really a, a digital solution for lots of these things. You know, um, so I think people really appreciate the idea of both being able to have a really good catalogue that you can find things that are relevant to you and is well catalogued and signposts the way to find something um, but also like that serendipity of being able to come to the museum um, the way we organise things I could say give a box of programmes from the 1920s all of which they might find interesting and they can go through and find something amazing kind of in, in that so I think people really do appreciate that. I know the students were really keen to come back and start working with original artifacts again. So I don't think it's like a, an old people, young people thing. Um, in fact, we find, I think with young people, obviously they have certain expectations about what they might find online, but um, they are really thrilled when you, when you get everything everywhere in that way. And the difference of actually encountering a physical object, I think is quite special to them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was talking to a colleague last night. Uh, we were out, and she'd taken her first years into the library for for her module. Um, and some of them had never been in a library before, you know. And you realise actually, yeah, there is. It they just they just don't know what it is. They don't know what it holds and what it can be, yeah. you know. But but it's so exciting to see them sort of 
yeah, awaken to that possibility. Yeah. In um, yeah, in a way which I think is really interesting. Well, that seems like a good point to uh, take a stroll around the collection. Okay, sure. So we are now inside the museum. Yeah, this is the lower gallery. So this is this gallery is really dedicated to um, the optical media that preceded cinema and the beginnings of cinema itself, except for this material about Bill Douglas. Uh, so we have some of Bill's awards. Uh, we've got some uh, archive material from comrades because we do have some filmmaker archives here as well. Obviously Bills, but also Don Boyd's, Gavin Losey's, James Mackay's, and some other filmmakers. We've got an amazing collection of photographs from Continuity Supervisor Pamela Davis, for example. So we do have some filmmaking collections. But apart from this material about Bill, this is mainly historic material in this gallery. I guess the oldest forms of movie pictures debate about cave paintings, but we've got caves. So, <laughs> Those uh, cave fans are going to riot, Phil, <laughs> when they hear this. It's, um, it's shadows and shadow puppets. So we have these amazing puppets, which um, are, you know, reproductions of things that have been going on for hundreds of years in places like Java, India, China, Turkey, um, where you have these amazing, beautiful, coloured uh, puppets. You shine a light through them, they create a shadow, you manipulate the puppets so that the shadows tell a story or perform a sketch. Um, so these have been going for many hundreds of years all around the world. You can see here, for example, this is a 19th century um, Magic Lantern slide showing a Gamelan show in Java, uh, which is a kind of an amazing double, as Peter would say, <laughs> where you have both, it's both a lantern slide and shows a shadow show. Um, in the 19th century, shadows came to the West and you had all these different kinds of shadow play in Britain, for example, we have these things, the ombroscopes, which are kind of like inverted silhouettes. You shine a light through them and it creates a silhouette. In this case of Shakespeare or Napoleon. And then right through to obviously shadow artists like Lottie Reiniger who are making animation films in the early 20th century. Um, but shadows are really the way in which you use projections to tell stories. So they, they, they set out a sort of way in which you can creatively use projection. Fantastic. And I see, I just noticed you've got like an audio guide as you go around as well, so... Yeah, we've got, that's Peter talking on this gallery, um, you know, Peter talking about some of the material that uh, he and Bill collected um, from uh, what's contentiously sometimes called pre-cinema. So once people understand the principles of projection and of, you know, making pictures move, you always have that idea about how you could create an illusion um, uh, where you think you're seeing something and in fact you're seeing something else. So you have all sorts of things like, obviously, kaleidoscopes, where you have an ever-changing um, bits of coloured glass that create new patterns. Uh, we've got some nice original early 19th century kaleidoscopes there, uh, originally created to, for textile design in industry. I mean, you know, people realised they were a great children's toy. Um, we've also got uh, kind of trick pictures. So this one here from a distance or at a glance, then you see it's, it's uh, formed as a picture of a skull. Yeah, I noticed the all is vanity one as a skull first. That's right, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. 
Um, and then you get hidden pictures. This is always a, a crowd pleaser. This is um, a picture of Windsor Castle in 1860, so it looks just like a load of trees by a lake. If you look carefully, there's Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, various Prime Ministers, some royal babies, all there hidden in between the trees. There's seven in there. All seven is quite hard, but uh, some people will get it straight away. Yeah. Some people have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I am one of the latter. <laughs> so Queen Victoria is there. See that bending tree trunk on the right? That's yeah. the back. If you see the gap between oh, that yes, and the Oh, yes, I tree see her now. Yeah. See. Hello, sweet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the wow. kind of leaves and branches making, making out her yeah. face. Fabulous. So you have that idea of creating an illusion, of creating a transformation. And that's because the eye and the brain can quite easily manipulate each other, you know. Those and equally, you've got here um, projected images but, uh, and transformational images, but used on a huge public scale. So the diorama and the panorama, we've got an amazing collection of these. And it's so interesting, isn't it, like, to just see how cinema evolved. Like, you can literally see the techniques of lighting and shadow. Yeah. Um, and kind of layering in, in Melier and people like that, you know, like it's, it's really closely connected. It's not a separate thing. Yeah, to and it's, it's immersive. That's the big thing. Yeah. It's an immersive medium yeah. uh, where you feel transported to become part of the picture. Usually it was bringing the world to you. So there were often uh, panoramas of, you know, exotic places people in London were never likely to go to yeah. or events they hadn't been in. A panorama set up in, in Leicester Square um, showing the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, and making you feel like you were there, making you feel like you were part of that battle without, of course, the danger of being killed. Yeah. Um, and it's this kind of vicarious experience um, that is really important. And it's also about the beginnings of globalisation, the beginnings of people being shown lives that were not like their own. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at the, the kind of the, the, the screening format almost, it feels IMAX. You know, yeah. it, like you say, talking about that immersion into that space, the safe space of being re really sort of surrounded by um, sort of an image experience. Yeah, but this kind of immersion doesn't have to be huge. It can also be small. <laughs> you get little things like this, the peep egg or the Stanhope viewer. These are little viewers where you get a, a sense of three dimensions. You also get a sense of immersion, even from just looking in the Stanhope viewer's case into this little sort of bone area where there is a kind of very very tiny picture photograph usually and you would see it on your retina as you held it up to the eye usually of seaside towns <laughs> funnily enough and this follow up follows on from a, a, a long tradition of trying to see things in three dimensions much older than cinema it could be either the peep shows of the 18th century where you're looking into a box it could be these beautiful telescopic views um, where you're looking into these amazing paper um, kind of contraptions that are drawn up and give you a, a, a sense of, uh, uh, of distance. Or it can be, in its most popular form, the stereoscope. Well, we have many hundreds of stereoscope cards, many viewers as well. And these are where you take a picture with a special stereoscopic camera, uh, two images, almost but not quite the same. The, distance, the difference in angle reflects the difference between your, your eyes. And you would... Um, look through the viewer, you'd see one image with um, three dimensions, creates a depth of field. Um, and these again can be places that you're never going to go, they can be experiences you're not going to have. Um, 
So you have all these different kinds of ideas of immersion um, and sensation that you can create. Yeah, amazing how long we've been tricking the brain into taking us somewhere else. The oldest things we've got are these, these books. These are from the 17th century. So wow. first illustration of a projected image published in Britain. So 1658, Della Porta's Magic Naturalis, and then 1671, Kirchner's Ars Magna et Ombre, which is um, got this picture of an illustration. If you look closely, you'll notice it's wrong. It's the wrong <laughs> way up. But Rome wasn't built in a day. You've got to start somewhere. And from here, you can have things like the camera obscura. Um, you can have then the magic lantern. And of course, in the east, they already have things like the magic mirror. They already have kind of projection kind of apparatus. Um, these are from Japan. The magic lantern is something we've got, you know, we've got many lanterns and we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of magic lantern slides. And they've been collected here to be representative of the different kinds of slides, particularly ones that move, because that's obviously the connection. So you can see ones with little handles, ones where you move the glass. So you see one image and then you're seeing another image. Uh, or you're passing a collection of images through the lantern, in this case some beautiful pictures of exotic animals um, and creatures. In the days before David Attenborough, this would be the day, the first time you ever saw these. You know. <laughs> yeah. And Magic Lantern, again, like many of these media, there's a home version and there's a public version. Uh, every Victorian would have been really familiar with the Magic Lantern show. Um, and they can be anything you want to be. They've got the beginnings of the horror film back in the 1790s, the Phantasmagoria Lantern shows where you go deliberately to be scared witless uh, and the slides are all manipulated. You've also got lantern slide sets that tell popular stories. So this is a beautiful set of Alice in Wonderland, ripping off the illustrations from the book uh, in story form. Uh, and there would be a script that would go along with these and um, the lanternist would tell the story while manipulating the images. Well, I mean, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Like, I was going to ask that, you know, there's a, there's a sound component, there's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's very common for people to think of, you know, well, of silent cinema or musical accompaniment, but an early part of cinema, and like you say, tracing it back is, is the storyteller, yeah. is the, you know, the, sort of the oral um, accompaniment to it. It's really yeah, interesting. they're always mediated, they're always, um, uh, there's always a showman, who usually would have been a man then, uh, who would be telling the story, uh, who would be manipulating the images. Um, with lantern slides, they, they, can, they, they kind of coexist with film for some time, and you'd have lantern slides that would be used for adverts. Um, you'd also have some groups with very big old lantern slides. These are called life model slides, and they have actors in poses to tell a story, to create tableau. Uh, this is a temperance movement. One of the temperance movement who are anti-drink campaigners were very big on the lantern. And if you're a skilled lanternist, you can create some sort of illusion of movement. You have things like the zoetrope, the praxinoscope. It's a really beautiful original. That's incredible, yeah. Um, which was um, designed by Emil Reno in the 1870s. Um, That's a really beautiful thing, isn't it? It, it just, is, It's yeah. gorgeous. There's a great piece of footage of Bill Douglas demonstrating this. Um, and Bill and Peter got really interested in the pre-cinema material and so from the 70s really started to try and collect these and in those days you could still find these if you knew what you were looking for or were bargain hunters you know it would be very difficult to put a collection together like this now yeah. the internet everyone knows the value of everything but um, these are really are an important stepping stone to film as well as being amazing in themselves yeah. because they create 
that sequence of movements of images, which is what uh, film yeah. uses. Um, things like flip books are all part of the same. This, this is a filoscope, so this is effectively a mechanised flip book, and a rather larger version there called the Kinora. Um, this is a very rare one, it has an RW pore film that doesn't exist on film anymore. So they are made as films, and then yeah. they are cut up and blown up onto pieces of paper and put into a flip book. Um, and they create you know, stories and narratives as well. And once you have this, and you also have the development of photography at the same time, then you can have an idea of cinema, effectively. Yeah. And there's a few technical hurdles that are overcome, but you know, with people like Edward Mybridge at the back there, we've got uh, quite a number of things to do with Mybridge. Um, Edward Mybridge is an outrageous affectation. His name is really Edward Mybridge <laughs> from Kingston upon Thames. He's something of a something of a bouquet about him. <laughs> um, but he's a photographer that makes his name in the States, um, both creating kind of panoramic pictures, but then making pictures about motion. One of the things I love about walking around spaces like this is that you know you realise that the periods are not. They're not finite blocks. No. So when you've got you know, the idea of photography, the idea of persistence of vision, there, there is a, a kind of a race on. You know, people realise that there's something there that can be created. Um, and there's a number of different pioneers that participate in that. So in Britain, of course, we have Freeze Green, who's a photographer. We have many studios down here in the southwest. But probably the most successful were Edison in the States and the Lumieres in France. So Edison, of course, is already really famous. Yeah. You know, he claimed, I believe he didn't really, but claimed to have invented the electric light and the phonograph. Um, and he gets a, a British inventor called Dixon, William Kennedy Lowry Dixon, to try and invent something that he says would do for the eye what the phonograph does for the ear. And he invents something called the kinetoscope. And this is Dixon's memoir with his own pen notes about how he invented the kinetoscope. Wow. And best of all, around here, We've got what we think is the only surviving menu card of the first private view of the kinetoscope, um, and that is um, from 1894. So effectively, the first showing of moving pictures in Britain. Wow! So we've got the sound effect here. <laughs> So this is an individual experience, it's more like video games I guess than cinema. Oh, back to VR as we talked about. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So this is why the Lumiere's win, because the Lumiere's always have the idea of projecting um, images to a paying audience yeah. in the space, which is what we understand cinema. So we have here an original cinematograph. So this is the machine that first showed films to a paying audience. There's only 200 of these ever made. This is number 108. Wow. Uh, so that day in Paris, in 28th of December, 1895, when the first films were shown, including the train coming to the station, all those kind of things, um, then uh, that was on one of these machines. Um, so here we have, you can see how incredibly small it is. Um, so it's a camera uh, and a printer and a projector all in one. There would have been a magic lantern projector put on the front to project the images. Um, you can see here we've got the, the plate here showing us an original one. Uh, but there were so few made because they quite quickly improved it. Mm. Um, this was shown in, in, brought to London in, early in 1896. But you could only do 57 seconds. Um, and 
quite quickly. People wanted to see see more, uh, although the Lumiere's were quite inventive with what you could do in 57 seconds. So they improved the camera and they changed it and they created new cameras and quite quickly the Lumiere's were kind of overhauled. A playbill from the Argyle and Birkenhead early in 1897 with top of the bill of musical acts, Paul Verini's improved French cinematograph. Uh, so Paul Verini has improved French cinematograph, means he's obviously ripped it off royally from uh, the Lumiere's. Uh, but really quickly, there's so much innovation in this short period um, that things change very, very fast. So you can see here we've got all these um, handbills and programmes from musicals where film is being shown. Because, of course, there aren't dedicated cinemas, they're using existing entertainment spaces. Um, here you've got a set of um, cards. These would have been with coffee or chocolate. They're from France, they're called the Tricks of Cinema and they explain special effects. They're wow. from 1903. And many things happen long before you might have thought they do. So you'd think colour, when's the first colour film? Is it Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind or something? It's actually 30 years earlier. So the Kinema colour film process, patented in 1906, you can make full colour films. It's a projection process, it's not hand colouring. You see, for example, this imperial film of the King and Queen's trip um, to the Delhi Durbar in 1912. That's a full colour two-hour film. Wow. Uh, it's not that you couldn't do it. It's a really interesting case study in how it's a dynamic between technology, the industry and the audience. So you could do the technology and the business kind of went along with it. They showed it for a bit, but it was really expensive. You'd had to refit out all your cinemas. And the audience demand didn't seem to be sufficiently there. Yeah. You know, people thought, oh, that's nice. I'm quite happy with black and white, though. You know? And it's another, you know, another few decades before colour becomes the norm. Really. We don't tend to have lots of cameras and things, certainly not after 1920. Here's a special camera, though, because we're pretty sure this is the camera that shot the film of the Battle of the Somme. Wow. So the original first film of conflict, um, showing actual conflict scenes, yeah. but admittedly uh, also with some staged ones. And you can see it's signed in a magazine there, J.B. McDowell. And J.B. McDowell was the cameraman that shot the song film, one of the two cameramen that shot it. Uh, now it's dated 1928, which you don't see much later, but this camera was long obsolete by then, so we think that's probably the date that he sold it. You can yeah. see that the camera is covered in camouflage paint. Yeah to avoid glinting yeah. on the battlefield. And you can see a picture of McDowell with the camera there. And it looks remarkably like this one. So we're pretty sure that, that yeah, is yeah. the original camera that shot the film Battle of Somme. And that's the joy of collecting, is that Bill and Peter picked this up at auction because they wanted a crank handle camera. And it was only when they looked inside they found the signature yeah, and realised it was McDowell's. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I just look, I just noticed on the, uh, on the playbill there, there's a, an engagement called Vampires in Big Letters. Yeah, it's in four vampires in a cockney in France. That's amazing. amazing. That, that sounds absolutely <laughs> fantastic. That's cockney vampires in France. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. More of that now. <laughs> How did musical die? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of the lower gallery here. Great. So I'm going up the stairs now. We've got a couple of temporary exhibition cases here, which was changed, but sometimes they did too with research projects going on at the university. So you'll see one at the top that's to do with a a research project which is really about the distribution of Western LGBT films in China, but we've done a broader LGBT cinema history case here that's been up here for a few months. 
We've just passed some fabulous posters, which I just... Yeah, it's part of our posters. poster collection. We've got a nice poster collection. There's just not enough walls. <laughs> just stopping at the uh, display for the um, LGBT in, in, uh, in China. And there's a lovely Odin clock just above it. Gorgeous. Yeah. I might get, I might get a picture of that. That's all right. So when we were, when we were downstairs, those, those sort of... The, 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 the oldest parts of the collection, you know, the books... Um, I get such a thrill from being in near yeah. those things. You know, how does how does it make you feel? You know, like what what what's it like to sort of spend spend your days with the material yeah. of the past in that way? Well, it's great. <laughs> Discovering something new every day. Um, it's always fascinating. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great job to have. Yeah, absolutely. How did you? Um, yeah. So, so, how did you sort of en end up as a as a curator and sort of involved in? Museums and archives. Uh, well, I, I worked at the BFI for many, many years. So, so from my early twenties to um, to just uh, when I was early forties. Um, so, I worked at the BFI for a long time in the research and information service, and then was a curator of their TV collection. It was my research interest. Um, but I'm from the West Country originally, and this job came up, and uh, took the opportunity. So, I've been here fourteen years now. And um, try to, you know, get more more people interested in the museum. Um, and yeah, this this is the upper gallery. So this is story really from 1910ish, where we left downstairs up to the present day. Well, the break is the introduction of dedicated cinemas. So although cinema was invented in the 1890s, people were showing it in all sorts of existing spaces, but they had a terrible habit of keeping burning down. So in an early example of health and safety legislation. Um, the, um, they said that you needed to have a dedicated um, projection space that was separated from the auditorium, which effectively means a dedicated building. So they knew if they built it, people would come, and that's what, that's what happened. Yeah. So with a brief hiatus around the First World War, there is a kind of, uh, uh, kind of inexorable rise in cinema building up to the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, and quickly going to the cinema becomes an in, sort of ingrained part of everyday life in Britain. Britain has the highest cinema going rate in the world proportionally. Um, and you can see here some examples of that. So we have programmes and postcards of early venues. Uh, you can see here this commissioner's cap. Um, and I'm not sure it's torch, because part of the attraction of cinema was going into a space where you were made to feel special. Yeah. And its origins are as a working class medium, um, and a predominantly female medium as well, initially. Um, that was the core audience. So the idea is that, you know, having been the servant all day, you would go and be served. Mm. So the idea of having these uniformed staff, having these grand palaces, was to make you, the audience, feel special. You can see a, a nice example here. This is a picture of the Canning Town Cinema in 1912. So really early in... in uh, cinema kind of sites. Canning Town then is now a pretty tough part of the East End. Uh, but you can see there at the sort of portal of the of the cinema, 25 uniformed staff ready to greet their customers. Yeah. Um, we've also got things that you know people remember more recently, like the Saturday morning pictures clubs, all those kind of parts of, of the cinema going experience that people found um, so special and loads of opening programmes of cinemas, beautiful ones from the Odeon here. Um, 
including some local ones. There's a bit of the regal in Barnstable, so when they tore that down in the 70s, Bill and Peter rescued that from a skip. Um, people wanted to engage with cinema beyond the screen. Mm. So that's when you get the rise of the fan magazine. We've got a huge collection of fan magazines going right back to the first one in 1911 in Britain. These examples from the 20s and 30s are just yeah, really beautiful Yeah, things. gorgeous. They have amazing paper, it never seems to age. You know? <laughs> um, so, and they're fascinating kind of social documents. We use them for all sorts of subjects here. Um, they're clearly aimed at women predominantly, and they um, have all sorts of adverts and stories. But also, there's a dialogue going on between the fans and the audience and the business. It's not a case of them being kind of like like sheep being told what to do. Is you know they are pushing back against things they don't like and you know trying to say this is what we want. Um, and that's always been the case as well. You can sometimes see that with these press books. So press books were really for the cinema owners in those early days. We've got them going right back to the 1910s, really early ones here. The Elder Mrs. Blossom, that's from the 1910s. Um, but they have all these things charmingly called exploitation suggestions. Um, and it's really ways in which they think you can make their film appeal to your local audience yeah. through all sorts of different ruses, devices, competitions, talking points, all these kinds of things. They're constantly thinking who the audience might be. And this one, one of the exploitation ideas here is to create a Chinese atmosphere. Yes, this is the, the world of Susie Wong from 1960, which is a sensitive study of cross-cultural uh, relations and a not very sensitive uh, selling point is to create a <laughs> Chinese atmosphere in, uh, in your local area. Um, so often they miss the mark. <laughs> um, and also things that people create themselves. You know, these are um, scrapbooks. You know, people are making their own kind of response to what they see by cutting things out from different places and putting them together. Yeah. In this case, a rather fantastic fan's picture of Marlene Dietrich. Yeah, I mean, that's gorgeous. I, I, yeah. I wasn't sure it was at first, because it's so... And obviously, the, the design of the pages, you know, you've got a picture of Dietrich yeah. on one yeah. side with these beautiful sort of um, illustrative sort of flourishes, and then this yeah. absolutely amazing picture. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, here's a fan letter to Greta Garbo. She never replied, obviously. <laughs> She wanted to be alone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, wow. And here, as you'd expect, we've got loads on, on British cinema. Um, going right back to the earliest days, we've actually fairly recently got an amazing collection from a guy called Townley Cook, who very kindly left us in his will this um, amazing collection of silent film stills from British films. Uh, you can see some of them here, and sort of advertising boards. Um, so. Silent British cinema has tended to be underrated. You know, there was usually the narrative is that there's a, a successful period right at the beginning with people like R.W. Paul, and then it picks up when Hitchcock comes in in the mid-twenties. Um, but there were some interesting films around then. There's just a lot of people couldn't see them for a long time. Yeah. Um, and we've got lots of lovely star things here as well. Uh, and as we go into the twenties, you can see uh, into the 30s and sound, you can see the development of a kind of distinctive British cinema. Sometimes there are things that people appreciate abroad, like the private life of Henry VIII, mm -hmm. and then there's things like Gracie Fields. This is a sort of singing tankard of Sally Pride of the Alley, uh, are pretty much shown for British people alone. Um, <laughs> you know, and the way in which international stars like Paul Robeson were drawn in, he did yeah. a number of films in Britain. 
And that, just, yeah, sorry. Sorry, just, because I've just seen this, is, is that like a tin or? That's right, a, yeah, yeah. Jesse yeah. Matthews got a number of tins. those. Yeah, there's a sort of, t- uh, Jesse Matthews is a big musical star, yeah. uh, a romantic comedy star of the 1930s. Uh, so you're getting merchandise, merchandise. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that, you know, certainly there's that common idea that, you know, well, Lucas invented merchandise, um, but but it was a more of a latter phenomenon, yeah. you know. And yeah. it, you know, I think anyone who's spent any time, you know, in sort of cinema museums understands actually know that this this it's sort of fan practice has yeah. always been around, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really. And then we go through the forties. You know, you often see as the golden age of British cinema is uh, things like uh, the Laurence Olivier branded cigarettes, for example, um, and uh, rank starlet hair sets. Wow, all sorts of things yeah. being produced. Uh, and through the different highs and lows of uh, British cinema, it's always been a kind of boom and bust industry. Mm. There's moments when things go really well, end of the 50s, early 60s, you know, with the new wave, then occasional breakout hits, here you've got a full Monty Bold game. But a lot of the time then money disappears, and then, you know, there's also a kind of alternative practice that becomes ever more important, so we've got some stills from one of our archive collections is Gavrit Losey. Gavrit was the producer of the seminal black British film Babylon, 1980. Got some amazing stills there from the film. Fabulous. Um, and you can see some things from our archive collections over here when we look at filmmakers as well. Mm. And with British films, you know, there is, however, been a successful kind of set of franchises that uh, kind of productively work on that relationship with Hollywood. So we've got a huge Bond collection here in the corner with blockbusters. We've got Harry Potter. These are films that are culturally British. Yeah. You can argue they have some type of British soft power, but you know we can't afford to make them ourselves. So <laughs> Hollywood backrolls them for us. But it allows British technicians to stay and work in this country and all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And with the merchandise, you can see right from the beginning, you've got um, Bond jigsaws, Bond card games, Bond dolls, you know, all these kind of things are part of the attraction of the, of the series. Absolutely. When it comes to filmmakers, uh, as well as the archive material, we've got some nice bits from great directors. There's a, an Orson Welles Silver Salver, um, which is embossed with um, the message to Ted with thanks from Orson. This was a gift from Orson Welles to um, a British cameraman called Ted Lloyd. And um, when Ted died, his daughters has kindly donated that to us. What was the context of that? Do you know? That... I think they worked together on a, um, a TV adaptation of Moby Dick in the mid-50s. Oh, okay. And became friends and he gave that as a gift. Um, so we have the great filmmakers. You see Michael Powell, Jarman, people like that. But also, there are many people involved in making films. So I mentioned... Earlier, I think, the Pamela Davis collection. Pamela was a continuity supervisor, a really important role that is always by the side of the director. In those days, was sketching what was happening in front of the camera, so you get continuity from shot to shot, then you'd write up those reports. Uh, a role that was always done by a woman, you know, even when the industry was its height of its you know, masculine. Yeah. And you can see Pamela there with her book by the camera. You can see her next to Michael Powell there. Uh, she had a 40-year career in the industry, and the, this kind of photo collection was kindly de- uh, donated by her sister. Um, and here you can see we have lots of international cinema, mainly as it's been consumed in Britain, but Bill Douglas went to India, he met Satyajit Ray, and he got Satyajit Ray to sign all his children's books that he produced, <laughs> so we've got a lovely collection of those as well. Who, I didn't know he was a children's author as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, wow. a, a number of them, yeah, yeah. I mean, his own illustrations, yeah. yeah. 
And it's just, it's great, isn't it? Because I think that, you know, why would, you know, why would a, uh, a continuity person keep the stuff? You know, yeah. but it's just, people do, you know. They, yeah, there were they, some things that were, made, were done for her work and there's some things showing her at work. Yeah. So that's a really nice insight into, into what she did. What's that at the back there, which is this annotated script, is that? Yeah, so that is um, a, shooting script, a script, I, say, yeah. I think, for um, uh, a Michael Powell quote a quickie. Called oh, her okay. last affair, signed by Powell and the wow. cast and crew. Wow! So again, special. Yeah, very special. Yeah, lovely. So as I mentioned earlier, we've got a huge chaffing collection of a thousand things, and we talked about merchandise earlier. You can see some of the earliest examples here. Really, these are the first comics to be produced about film. The Charlie Chaplin Screen Book and Fun Book, nineteen sort of sixteen seventeen. You can see here the Jim Charlie, this is 1919, a toy produced using the image of Charlie Chaplin. It's kind of like an acrobat. Because Chaplin's fame is so fast and so kind of, you know, universal and all-consuming that he sets up film, you know, sets up the dominance of film as an entertainment form. It's something everybody understands uh, and is part of everybody's experience really quickly. And of course, because he is involved in all aspects of the film as well is the establishment of film as an art too yeah. because he was somebody that was actually respected by uh, intellectuals and opinion formers even at a time when cinema itself tended to be rather looked down on he directed the films he produced them he wrote them he composed the music that was played out them you know controlled all aspects of them so you can see you know chaplin with churchill as an image and here, um, Chaplin, Chaplin's fame, you can see reflected in some postcards that talk about everything he's got Chaplin mad. So you see the whole range of merchandise there, everything from Toby jugs to um, handkerchiefs to, you know, all sorts of, you know, comics. Um, I think that's talcum powder <laughs> Spain. That, Chasing Charlie, that looks like Snakes and Ladders. It is, yeah, that's right. a, a board game, Chasing Charlie. Definitely want to play um, Chasing Charlie yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Chaplin's everywhere. We've also got the biggest Disney collection in the UK. Now, this includes, of course, loads of ephemera and loads of um, merchandise. As Disney's always been producing lots of those things, you know, dolls, toys, yeah, Alice in Wonderland tea sets, collecting cards. But also, we've got quite a lot of original animation work. So um, a guy called Robin Allen donated his collection to us. Robin had written a book on Disney and Disney artists and their, you know, their influences from Europe and he became very friendly with some of those animators and they gave him gifts, uh, sometimes these original cells or these signed pictures. In this yeah. case this is a picture of Merriweather from Sleeping Beauty um, signed by the artist, wow. uh, by the animators, in this case Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. So we've got some beautiful things there. So we've got the first film star autobiography, Pearl White's Just Me, published in 1919, and our copy is dedicated by Pearl to Ernest Shackleton, the explorer, wow. which shows how film stars are becoming the equivalents of other celebrities. And also that uh, famous people are interested in film stars and have yeah. that, you know, that, 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 that it's not just a... They know who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They engage with that. And you can see everything here from Greta Garbo bottle stops. Um, I mean, female stars were the most important stars because the female audience was the most important audience and they wanted to see female-centred stories. 
Uh, this is a lovely thing. This is Marlena Dietrich's shoes. Wow. Donated to us quite recently by a lady called Maida who'd won them in a competition when she was a teenager in the 1930s. Um, Dietrich had been making a film in the UK. Uh, the prize offered by the film fan mag that she read was um, these shoes that she'd worn in the film. Mm. And she got one of those and got this side picture and everything. And then, of course, there's the sort of life of stars after they die or after they retire. Yeah. You know, stars can be adopted by new generations. Marilyn Monroe is a great example of that. We've got hundreds of things to do with Marilyn Monroe, and things are still being produced 60 years after she died. Audrey, Audrey Hepburn is probably more popular now than she ever was when she was um, alive. You know, young people have really embraced her image. You know, new things are being produced about her all the time. Is there a... You know, is there a kind of attention or a kind of, you know, like uh, a feeling that you need to kind of to stay on top of what's still being produced in terms of representing all that latter life as well as like the immediate stuff, you know, around, yeah, you know, yes, the I, think, I think we should, you know, because Marilyn Monroe doesn't mean the same as she meant in the 50s or even yeah. in the 80s. When I, you know, her meaning changes according to what we're talking about as a society. So yeah. all those things are different, you know. Um, Which is why you need a bigger space. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, when we get to the male stars, here's a great thing. This is a, a, um, a funeral card and mourning cloth for the funeral of Rudolf Valentino. Wow. Um, who, um, it belonged to Mabel Norman, who was also an important film star. Yeah, she was, yeah. Uh, Valentino, of course, the first great heartthrob, you know, his, his death sparked this kind of hysteria and beginning of celebrity culture. Um, so here you've got a variety of male stars, some of which... Uh, we're in that heartthrob vein, some of which appeal predominantly to other men, some action stars, some of which obviously were great trailblazers like the late Sidney Poitier, who's um, represented here as well. Um, and also people like James Dean, so we have a lot on James Dean, who of course only made three films in the space of a year or so before his very early death, but that kind of immortalised him as this kind of rebel image yeah. that remains very potent today. Lovely lobby card there. I love yeah. lobby cards. So lobby cards are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're always a really nice uh, piece of uh, ephemera. And I think you know my my good friend will be very happy that you've got Paul Newman's uh, salad dressing. Yes, in the it's very important, a very important artifact in film history. Yeah, he is in the sense <laughs> that you know he became that's he lent his film star, uh, you know, kind of uh, fame to you know producing something you know within industry. And not many stars would. I think, you know, because, you know, you see a lot of, obviously, the kind of the cool stuff of the day, like cigarettes or, yeah. you know, but it, there's something about that as I've always loved. It's like, yeah, you can have my name for a, and my face for a salad dressing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and there's this thing there which says, we, what we want more is, what we want is more movies and less talkies, which I guess is a, a kind of reaction against uh, the coming of sound. What, sort what's of, the context I mean, of that? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's, Lots of jokes about movies and talkies. There's, you know, the endless jokes in the 1920s about constipation are quite a surprise to the modern view. <laughs> um, but the um, the talkies were were by no means inevitable. You know, the idea now is that we think, oh, well, everyone must have wanted those because, um, you know, why wouldn't you? Because we know that's what happens. But actually, when you look at material, like uh, there's a fan magazine from 1927, so a few months before the Jazz Sea premiere where the editorial by this incredibly important and influential publisher says, you know, forget about talking pictures. This is, you know, a terrible idea. People will never accept it because 
this might sound odd, but if you look at the time, in the context of the time, then, you know, science cinema was going great, you know. They yeah. were making amazing films, the cinematography was brilliant. It, this seemed an incredible risk. And of course, for a while, you know, people did complain about the loss of quality um, because of the, the equipment, people couldn't, you know, lose much, you know, it became quite static. So it was by no means a given, you know, and, and none of these things are, you know, it's how people respond to what they see. And here we've got, um, you know, material on contemporary blockbusters, because obviously what happens in the 50s is that TV comes along, takes away the core audience of uh, older working class women who go to TV quite quickly, and the film industry has to see how they respond to that, and they respond by giving people what they can't get on the TV set, mm. by emphasising spectacle and scale. And eventually, in the 70s, they discover a new core audience, which is teenage boys, effectively, which remains the case today, although it's more nuanced than it was when I was growing up in the 80s, when only teenagers went to see them. <laughs> um, but you can see here, of course, um, the merchandise that was produced around the original Star Wars. That sets a, a kind of path for uh, the film industry, you know, and how important things like merchandise is, these original soap mm. models, for example. Um, the first ever Star Wars annual, these kind of things. And all the kind of merchandise that's still produced. I mean, there's still lots of physical merchandise coming through today. And also, of course, we've got this amazing Jurassic Park dinosaur, which was a gift from Steven Spielberg to Richard Attenborough after the first film. Uh, so, you know, it was terrifying, the realistic model. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And that was, again, one of the things that was so great about, about the film was the tactility of the... Yeah. The, uh, the dinosaurs, yeah, yeah beautiful. Absolutely. And of course we're still collecting contemporary stuff. It's been a bit difficult in the pandemic, there's been a bit less physical stuff around, I'm hoping that'll pick up again. Obviously the question for all museums is, is how will we capture things if they become not physical, you know, it's, it's, there's no easy answer to that. Yeah. Either. But also that's yeah. something we're thinking about all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So I'll show you just outside now. And in this display space here in the kind of reception area of the building that houses the museum, we have uh, a, an area that is often uh, student displays. So myself and the head of film, Linda Williams, we uh, teach a third year module at the university called British Screens, where the students kind of do a history of the moving image in Britain through the collection. And as half of their assessments in groups, they curate an exhibition. So these are the latest exhibitions, uh, some fabulous ones here, one on foreign language film in Britain, one on sort of masculinity comparing Britain to America, one here on horror films, and one here on the early voice class audience film. And they select the items, they choose the theme, they select the items, they design the display. And it's a great way for them to kind of learn about working with material culture, to learn about the complexities of movie image history yeah um and also to get some great skills as yeah. well you know yeah well i mean what a fabulous uh opportunity and what a fabulous assignment yeah you know, to, yeah. Kind of to, to go in and and pull out um and again like you know like just looking at it you would you wouldn't necessarily think that i don't mean this in a sort of patronizing way but undergraduate film students would 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 would, be, would kind of go in with that level of um, 
interest and care and sort of variety and obviously that's the reality of yeah. teaching is that you realize that on a day-to-day -day basis yeah, but there's a perception that they're just going to pick out star wars yeah but it's not true at all they, do, yeah, they want to make it um both intellectually rigorous and attractive you know and the way to do that is to, to think about the different things that we hold think about what they'd offer and uh, uh, you know a passing member of the public you know yeah. Yeah. and how they can put together to tell a story yeah and obviously and, and obviously like we said before like the the sitting with the material and the seeing the material really changes your relationship yeah. to it, I think. Yeah. You know, you know. Yeah. Phil's just gone into the racks to find a box on the Beatles because I am, as you know, writing a book on music films and a big part of that is Hard Day's Night and the Beatles films of the 60s. So here we have the original paperback um, that was released along with A Hard Day's Night. Um, you can see Wilfred Bramble uh, promoted in pretty much the same way as The Beatles. <laughs> um, so this is a novelisation yeah. based on the screenplay. This was obviously very common at the time is that you produce a novel. Yeah. Um, so this kind of cross-media promotion is something that's always been there, whether it's in the publishing or the music industries. Yeah, I only just learned about this uh, the other day. It was such a strange thing because, you know, they play themselves, it is a narrative, they're playing themselves, they're playing versions of themselves yeah. in a narrative, but the idea that then a novelisation would be written to to kind of, you know, sort of to write around that is, is a, yeah. kind of amazing. Um, yeah. And I, I do what, I, I mean, yeah, I would love to read that. Here's the Pixarama fold book of the Beatles. Phoning appears to be a team job, yes. There's a mention of uh, Hard Day's Night, which is coming up at the time this is produced. So, shooting starts next February on a film about the boys set in Liverpool. The script is by North Country playwright Alan Owen. Should be good. They're not wrong. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Fantastic. So, where are we now, Phil? Well, this is our shelves of published screenplays. So, we've got huge amounts of published screenplays, including quite a lot of rarities. Dylan Thomas, James Baldwin, I made films, I know... Uh, but we also have masses of unpublished screenplays. Um, sometimes they've come to us from filmmakers or actors. So we've got Leo Gens' collection, we've got um, Ozzy Morris's collection um, of screenplays that he used as a cinematographer. Um, so, so, you know, a number of things that have been used on sets. But we've also got lots of things that were never made. So we recently got 1,500 scripts from Pinewood, uh, from the Rank collection mainly 50s and 60s. We've got some big projects on these at the moment because they're an amazing resource. There's some really quite well-known writers, adaptations. Um, most of them never happened. A few of them were filmed, but most of them weren't. But it's a fabulous sort of alternative history of cinema. I Absolutely. Feel like things that never, never occurred. Cinema plays, how to write them, how to sell them. You know, it's always the idea that, you know, you too can be a screenwriter. That's from 1917. Wow, that's amazing. So these are obviously for silent films, but yeah. sort of scenarios and stories for um, early silent films. So you see the chapters on the manuscript and its sale. The value <laughs> of neatness. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> something my students need to know. Yeah. Um, um, so there are a lot of these early screenplay manuals, guides as well. Um, famous ones like the new screen, uh, technique of screenwriting by Tamar Lane. But also other ones as well that we're trying to sort of, you know, encourage their sort of excitement about film in the public and the idea that they could participate in some ways yeah. um, so there's a number of these these things here picture plays and how to write them this would be another 31 um, so as cinema takes off in the tens and you know into the 20s then um, this is 1916 wow 
that you get a lot of these books. And of course you still do today, you know, yeah. there's the old Robert McKee, Sid Field, all those kind of people as well. Well it's interesting isn't it, I mean I read something the other day where they're like, oh this started with Sid Field and it's like, you know, um, it didn't. It started, no, you know, it's no. like it's and it's so connected to the, like say early cinema. It's not. Yes. You know, yeah. it's even when you don't think of silent films as having a script as such, because it's yeah. like it's, of course you had scenarios that people followed to film. Yeah. So, you know, it was already an important part of screen screenwriting yeah. uh, of the film process. Um, yeah. So we have a lot of things here on screenwriting as a craft, and of course it's always been interesting in terms of women in films. So Frances Marion, for example. Is her technique guide how to write and sell film stories? Who was already a famous screenwriter and includes one of her um, scripts, um, and you know she was a really important person within the film industry. People like Anita Luce got a lot yeah. on her. Okay. Um, and when the, in the the rank collection we're going through now, we're finding you know we're, we're seeking out the female writers and trying to sort of you know put them back in the spotlight about their story. Yeah, thank you so much for, for taking me around today, Phil. You're welcome, Neil. It's great to be, uh, be on The Cinematologist. Well, you're, uh, yeah. People coming to explore for themselves. Yes, hopefully this will uh, spark a few, uh, a few trips down here, particularly, I think, you know, the, um, the, the relationship with the university and hopefully, the, you know, the, the research aspect of it yeah. um, for those people who are a bit further afield. Uh, and certainly, um, certainly I'll be back uh, as, as a general punter, I think, um, with, with my yeah. family. So the galleries are open every day, free and open to everybody every day. And the research facilities are open by appointment Monday to Friday every week. So you Great. get in touch. Well, I think I might, I might just do that for my book before it goes in. Great. Yeah. Thanks very much, Phil. Thank you, Neil. Cheers. So I've had the tour, I've had uh, lunch, <laughs> and I spent some time amongst the racks and amongst the displays, and yeah, it's been an absolutely just a wonderful couple of hours, I have to be honest, you know, beyond the thrill of just being out in spaces, in places with books and memorabilia and posters and things like that, and cameras and uh, zoetropes, it's just, you know... I love these places. I love being around the objects of the history of the art form that I just love so much. Um, and it reminded me of, you know, why I love these, you know, museums and libraries as spaces, you know. We have a lovely, at Falmouth, we have a lovely small archive with some of the Bill Douglas collection there. Um, available and it's such a lovely space and if I'm feeling stressed or I've got an hour where I, I can go and, and sort of you know do a little bit of reading or a little bit of thinking I'll just 
well, I used to, just be able to go and rock up and sit amongst the books, amongst the history, and read and write and think, you know. And I think there's a real energy and a real power to that. And I know that sounds new age, and I don't really care <laughs> because I believe it, you know, and I feel it when I'm in these spaces. I feel that they have an energy and a story to tell, you know, and I love being around them and I love thinking about the hands that wrote the letters and the, you know, the hands that built these machines and, you know, the people that that have just put their life into this art form that this podcast is dedicated to. Um, and I hope that, yeah, I hope that you've enjoyed listening to Phil and myself just walk around amongst things and talk about them. So thanks to Phil for taking me around and showing me the sights and the wonders of the Bill Douglas Cinema Museum. I had a really lovely day and yeah, as you hopefully could get from the the audio there, I had a, I had a really good time and I love being in those kind of spaces. Um, but Dario, I noticed that you made a lot of notes about uh, about this app and it sort of sparked some, some things you wanted to talk about. So yeah, what, what did you make of that that audio tour of the Cinema Museum? Yeah, just uh, well. First of all, congratulations on the on sort of uh, doing a an aural experience kind of uh, edit there. So uh, yeah, was that just with your your um, mobile Zoom mic? Yeah, it was just with the Zoom mic. I tried to I tried to get sort of what I thought might be better equipment, um, but the the stores team here were just were kind of snowed under, so I ended up yeah, just yeah, yeah. just taking my little Zoom mic. And there's a few bits where there's a there was a noticeable clunk when i was kind of moving around that that sort of impacted too much and there's a few bits like that where it just yeah yeah it's yeah, yeah. a little bit a little bit of a clunk but for the most part yeah it's just i was just being really careful with the zoom and um it came out really well i thought in terms of the the general quality of it for sure yeah cuz those zoom mics are good but they do i think it's something to do with the casing means that any little touch on the outside and then you get this massive clunk so i think it was just amazing that you got the 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 sound that you did and also the sort of different layers where you're in different rooms it's really interesting when you sort of move through and you've got the same mic but you're in different spaces that 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 comes across and it was sort of nice to have the the walk and talk element of it you know going in and out of the corridors and what have you and then you sort of seeing something and turning to it and going oh look at that over there and then a then a sort of bit of a description and it really sort of tied into that idea of the you know the idea of the audio cinematic in terms of and you're thinking in, in in terms of sort of being in an environment where you're talking about cinema but also then that sense of um the ways in which what we call now paratexts and texts interrelate with each other and 
you know, this sense of digital preservation and reiterating the importance of the the physical and we can we can talk a little bit about that maybe in the bonus at the at the end you know this sort of sense of our differentiation between you know maybe oh, I, I don't think we're that far apart in terms of sort of putting importance onto material artifacts but what that actually then means I think is slightly different maybe for each of us but yeah it's just it was fascinating that that sense of the way in which it reminded me about how when when we think about films, we do tend to still think of them in in the abstract as their own thing and not not affected or contextualized by the paratextual uh, elements that feed into how we watch films, right? So and it and it reminded me sort of writing this piece for Mubi, which is still still to come out. Hopefully, you know, beginning of next month, I think now. Um, on this dichotomy that comes from Girish Shambu, this there and elsewhere, this idea of the there of watching and the elsewhere of thinking and talking and and contextualizing cinema, and it just keep it, it just sort of reminded me that sort of reiterating that as a binary, provoking a kind of separation between the two and talking about it in that way, which ends up being a hierarchy. You know, films as the watching of the film itself is always more important than the sort of paratextual relationship, but in a way, it kind of misconceives cinema to a certain degree because films are always anchored in paratexts. We can never really watch the films outside of, say, a, a trailer, but may, maybe not even something as formalized as that. You know, the the idea that we've seen a poster or somebody on Twitter has said, go and see the latest whatever movie. All of these things structure our approach to a text. So it's really interesting how... You know, obviously, the Builders Douglas Center as a film museum is championing that, and how it it really is incumbent on people within film culture to keep championing that. Whether it's support for museums generally, but support for the the very idea of what they are, <laughs> as much as anything else, you know. Um, and that's why I love you. You know, something something like when you you commented on this idea of memory boxes as a a, a process of of curation you know that we whenever we're, we're we're putting together our our memories or our notion of the significance of cinema um this is always a labor of curation and i know that's something you're interested in and therefore it's always a a discourse as well it reflects individual and collective cultural influences and the way that we use the internet today always in some ways kind of kind of allows us to abdicate that you know we sort of think that everything is available on the internet and we've got this sort of ultra freedom to be able to go and pick and choose but really whether it's algorithms or just the the, the way that interface works we t we're a lot narrowly confined into the things that we that we watch um more than we think we we think we actually are in this sort of you know this idea of an open internet era and and it just it, it it came back as well really to that that question that you posed for yourself and was sort of the the tenor of the entire interview which is what is a library what is a museum it's the you know that the importance and the nature of the space being in the presence of historical objects and it it imbues that sense of phenomenological experience that we're embodied subjects we everything that we see feel and and 
you know, really at the end of the day, no, is is filtered through this embodied experience. So it was just really nice to listen to that and have have the sound be able to shape in a certain way that that phenomenological experience. Yeah, just uh, I don't know if you I've got a few more things I can say, but um yeah, maybe you, you can pick up on some of that. Cool. Yeah, well thank you very much. That's yeah, really kind. Uh, I'm glad that it it worked in that way for you um and hopefully yeah, for the listeners. It was it was a reminder of yeah, like what what's changed in terms of the internet, you know, and not just that that the access that that we think is there but also the idea of what happens when you're kind of you 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 have that ability in on your phone or, or so close to you you know and walking around the, the museum was a reminder of how pre-internet you know and pre sort of vhs or whatever like the, the text was a fleeting thing for for many people you know like they might see that film once um and that would be it mm. You know, so how did they carry the film with them? How did they carry, you know, um, and that's all of the all of the stuff around it felt less, less like, you know, kind of obviously it was cash in and a lot of it was kind of marketing, but it felt like the things that people would 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 use to access the experience of watching the film again in a much more direct way than, you know, than people do now. Because it's like, well, I can just turn on my phone and I can watch the trailer or I can watch the thing, you know, and that 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 kind of what those objects mean felt different in a in a sort of a pre-internet space which i thought was really interesting to kind of be reminded of that and to see it all laid out which was yeah really exciting um and also yeah just the again i think that the fact that and i sort of mentioned it in the thing but like but people people kept this stuff you know people looked after it wanted it to be preserved mm. in a way that suggests a connection which went beyond the text of, of just oh this is a film I like you know that they they thought the thing that represented that feeling was meaningful um, and kept it and looked after it and now it is shared you know and that that lineage which reminds us that all of these things that we think are new about either paratexts or you know material materiality in terms of the thing um, sort of coming back in a very um in a very kind of hip way has been part of the the film experience from from the first which i think is is, is just really fascinating again to be because it's again because of everything it's been a while since i've been around so much film stuff um i think the last time was the the kubrick at the at the design museum um mm. and it's just it's yeah there's something about standing in front of things which kind of elicits a certain response which sitting in front of a screen just can't do yeah yeah um and i suppose as well it it sort of links to what we're going to talk about more when we do these film education um episodes and particularly in the last couple of years you know this sense that the the, the library is an educational re resource and the very idea of going to the library and what a library actually is, I mean, it, it, I mean, you mentioned it in the interview, it's com completely devalued because of the internet. And, you know, we have this fantastic motion of, of mobility, which is great in many ways. You know, you can kind of work anywhere and go anywhere and you're connected to, uh, you know, an ether that gives you access to all the information you want at any given point. But 
the downside of that is we lose our connection to to people and to places. You know, that sense that, I mean, I don't know if you were like this when you did your PhD. I mean, I know you were finishing it when we were working together, but there was a sense for me when I was doing my PhD was carving out a communal practice. You know, I went to a space where there were other PhDs working and there was a there was a lunchtime where we all went and had lunch. And then, you know, with my friend Zoe, we went in the evenings to certain spaces over and over again. And there's something again about that that sense of embodied practice and the and the library as a as a place that is free, <laughs> that's set up to be able to do that is something that is completely lost. You know, not completely lost, but do you know what I mean? It's just it's just not considered there in the same way that it that it was before. Um and I think that's that's kind of sad. And also it just reminds us of the the neoliberal logic of everything now it's like i think libraries are, are very much devalued because they're not seen as a space that is going to be produce producing you know in an obvious way economic outcomes so it's it's that's why they're easy to kind of put to one side or devalue in that in that sense and then defund you know if we're talking sort of politically but I mean the other thing about the about the about what you recorded there was this this connection or this this sort of conceptualization of 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 contemporary cinema of, of cinema in the digital age which reflects that that piece that Lev Manovich wrote what is digital cinema which I've been using on a, a course I'm teaching at the moment which connects the digital era right back to early cinema and and talks about the way that the, the construction of animation and things like what you talked about, the mechanized flick, flick books. There's almost more correlations to early cinema and the invention of technology and stuff like that than there is to the standardized um, narrative filmmaking that be, you know became the staple of the economic industry. And that's what digital, that's the exciting part of, of digital cinema in, in, in many ways. And it just sort of, reminded me of, of of thinking about that that's great yeah and i think standing in front of some of that stuff you you sort of <laughs> you realize how things like imax and vr are not new ideas you know they're new technologies yeah. <laughs> but they're yeah. not new ideas you know which just is, is fantastic and fascinating you know like this these are the way people have conceived of how to experience visual stimulation for you know well well over a century now you know sort of nearly two centuries in terms of some of that some of that stuff which is yeah kind of mind-boggling um and just on the library stuff i think what's what's interesting is like thinking about the library here you know um and i was in the special archives the other day um which we have some of the bill douglas um uh archive here and it's you know it's a it's a, it's a lovely space to work and mm. to just kind of reach up and grab a book what, what i find interesting is that whenever there's a student survey about what students want from the library it's more space to work they see it as a place to work that's not yeah. their home, you know, but they they don't make a leap to the books or the journals. You know, they I've had so many tutorials with students where they're in the library and I'm like, why don't you just literally reach behind you? You know, I had a, 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 a dissertation student saying, oh, I can't find anything on, you know, 80s cinema and masculinity. I'm like, there's a shelf, you know, because your algorithm is configured to your taste and you're a bit outside of your taste it's not showing you things that are there but there's there's loads of books on that you know just take a walk along the racks and see mm. 
and see what else is there and see what it's sitting next to and make those connections. And that's a shame that they don't see it as a space for that. They see it as a space to do their work. And at, and our library has grown. It's a lovely space, but it's grown at the expense of the collection, you know, because they put more tables in yeah. and they put more cubicles in, which means less room for artifacts. And it's like, well, we're just, you know, we're creating more space for people to Google <laughs> information, um, which is not a library. Yeah. You know, that's just a workroom or a, you know, like there are loads of those. And, we're very lucky to have a great collection. Or it's a meeting space, isn't it? Where, exactly. Where, where the, the library is, is designed, in, in a sense, where conversation now is natural to take place. You know, that's always the thing I remember about the Falmouth Library. And, and it's slightly different than St. Peter's one here. But, you know, where they, at Falmouth, they had to create a, you know, quiet rooms <laughs> because nobody was going to be quiet because it's got this open plan effect hasn't it so it's it, again it's changing the nature of what the expectation of the experience is is going to be in terms of learning but also you know as you say sort of the focus of attention becomes each other and conversation and online rather than what's on the shelves yeah yeah which is which is is needed and necessary but that's not a library is it you know like it's it's about it's about what's in the books and it's about what's in the journals and the films and the, you know that the artifacts um and I think that students would have a more productive experience if they if they were to just again lift their head up and just say what's what's along here. We've got so many film books, you know, um, and it's just a way of seeing the world that they don't have access to, um, that they kind of need for their studies at least, if not if not to be kind of better cinephiles or or more engaged filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well. Maybe we'll uh, we'll leave it there and we'll head off to our bonus uh, morning cocktail party again, sin, sans cocktail, uh, maybe coffee instead. But um, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the, the, the this idea of um, working in specific material environments and our relationships to sort of the idea of material objects and artifacts and what, you know, how they're imbued with certain significance individually or not, as the case uh, as the case may be. But yeah, so just to say, you know, congrats on the episode. And I thought Phil Wickham was really great. He seemed to intuitively, you know, lend himself to the spirit of what you were trying to do, which obviously makes it a lot easier. If, <laughs> that, that can often be quite difficult, as we know, sort of sticking a microphone in somebody's face and say, be spontaneous and what have you. But he was very good, I, I thought. And just, uh, yeah, well done on the episode. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks again to Phil. Um, he's a pro. You know, he's obviously done that that tour quite a lot, but um, it felt fresh and it was really enjoyable. And um, yeah, I'm really pleased that it came out as well as it did. Um, and hopefully, people will will make a trip there. It's well worth it. Fantastic. So we are going to call it a day there. We have another episode coming quite sharpish on on the back of this one, where I'll be talking to um, a filmmaker called Cherish Oteka um, about a film that she has made called The Black Cop which has been BAFTA nominated a short which is a, again a, a, an unusual one for we've done some shorts episodes before but um, this one focusing on one particular short short film that, that, that has a lot we've got a lot to say about it so that's good um, so yeah that's it thanks once again to our audience for your continued support this has been the Cinematologist Podcast thanks for listening